Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Warnowns, a privateer press podcast. I'm Locke, he's Caster, and today we will be talking about Warcaster Rules Revised Part 2. Welcome to our 28th episode, and that intro did not take me three times to record. Nope, uh, not not at all. <laughs> I can hear your smile. <laughs> uh, I was trying so hard to bite my lip on that last one. <sighs> so, um, welcome everyone. Yeah, uh, we've made it 28 episodes now. This is pretty awesome. Yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> So, um, and I don't know what I'm drinking tea-wise today. Caster made it. It's sitting here on the desk. I am waiting for it to finish steeping, and then I'm going to drink it. I don't know what it is. Well, fin- finish off your old one first, and then you'll okay. hopefully the new one will be steeped by then. Um, she has a special blend, and I have a... I think it's a grapefruit. It's the one I chose. I can't remember. I was hemming and hawing on him. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, some sort of uh, grapefruit tea with some uh, lemongrass notes. Nice, good stuff. Um, and this is not from our normal uh, tea place. Uh, they're actually from Republic of Tea. Oh, don't look at me. I don't know. I'd have to go look, and I'm too lazy to do that right now because I'm recording. Yes. <laughs> All right, so last time we were doing the Rules Digest Part 1. And we ended on movement with ladders, stairs, elevators, and how jumping works. And no one has come back and said, you forgot this, that, or the other. And I've double-checked things, so everything is uh, perfectly set there. We're good. Uh, So I said we were going to start off this next one with how attacking works, but I almost forgot. Terrain comes before that. So, um, is there anything we need to go over, or uh, any news or anything I'm forgetting? We can cover that at the end of the episode if we need to. Okay, sounds good. Um, so there's not a whole lot left to this, so let's go ahead and dive right into it. Terrain for Warcaster Neomechanica. Now, before explaining terrain, one needs to keep in mind that this game is designed to be played across literally thousands of worlds, and as a result, the following are only some of the terrain types you could or may use across your games. And as a result, both players need to definitely agree on a ruling for any terrain or environment you're using before the game begins. Possibilities could potentially include anything of the following or above and beyond, such as zero gravity, low gravity, lava flows, jungles, caustic atmosphere, arcanescence rivers, and really anything else you can think of. Uh, However, as a general rule, a model can occupy only a surface its base has enough space to stand on. So if you put the model up there and it wants to fall over, uh -uh, not going to work. Additionally, the base needs to be able to stand with the vast majority of it completely in that environment. Whatever it happens to be, ledge, hill, rough terrain, whatever it is. Uh, If you go crazy with physical 3D terrain, make sure to keep base sizes in mind. If the area is too small or uneven and the model does not want to stay there unassisted, you cannot put it there, or at least should not, without any special rules you and your opponent uh, came up with. And if you don't want to have 3D terrain, you don't need to, but the game is really most enjoyed with actual 3D terrain. Yeah, definitely. It was built with 3D terrain in mind. Which is harder to find than one would suspect. Yeah. If you want actual nice 
terrain, it is kind of, I don't, yeah, it's kind of difficult. It, it, some people have more access to it than others. We do not have a lot of access, so we don't have a lot of room to start storing 3D terrain. With tiny little hands running around, nope. Nope, nope, nope. And for those of you who have been wondering, where are your children? They were really prevalent for the first several episodes. We have opted to record mostly while they are asleep due to the frequency of We've mentioned that interrupt before. interruptions. I, I recall a guy that asked, uh, I assume guy, girl, what have you, someone individual. on Discord. Yeah, an individual on Discord asked about it. And uh, we we try to record eh. when they're asleep. Occasionally we don't, and uh, we had to scrap like an entire episode because of it. Yeah, so which was unfortunate. I was we'll have to try and get back to that one eventually. Anyways, I digress. Continuing on. Uh, so the terrain rules that are s roughly set in stone by Privateer Press are the ones as follows. We have rough terrain. This is difficult terrain that models move through at a reduced pace. If a model would enter rough terrain at any point while moving or being moved, such as a slam, reduce the distance the model moves by two inches to a minimum of one inch. Note that this is only for the remaining movement at the time of entering terrain, including if it started in it. Example one is if a model is starting in rough terrain, then the model automatically moves at minus two movement. Example B, your model is advancing up to six inches and moves three inches before contacting the rough terrain that it is moving into. Thus, the remaining three inches you would have to move is reduced to one inch then it ends its movement inside of the rough terrain. So that is how rough terrain works. Next you have obscuring terrain. This could be anything such as fog, forests, vines, tall grass, or anything else you can come up with. When drawing line of sight to or from a point within obscuring terrain, the line of sight can pass through up to three inches of obscuring terrain without being blocked. Anything more blocks line of sight. When a model outside of obscuring terrain attempts to draw line of sight to another, uh, to attempts to draw line of sight to another point also outside of rough terrain, but crossing over the obscuring then obscuring terrain blocks the line of sight. So it could be a quarter of an inch thick, a small teeny tiny line of it, and it will and you have a model on one side, model on the other, completely on opposite sides, cannot draw a line of sight, the obscuring blocks line of sight. Thus um Thus, you may be able to see three inches into obscuring terrain, but never through it, regardless of if it's four inches thick or only one inch thick or less. So there you have it. Next we have obstacles. Obstacles provide cover. Keep in mind that, uh, actually we'll get to cover later, but I'll state it here. Cover, anytime you roll your dice for a defense, uh, a defense roll cover gives you two power dice to add to that roll and exactly how that works again we'll get to in a little bit so obstacles provide cover an obstacle is any physical barrier on the table up to one inch tall such as a wall alien flora a barricade or a standing ruin Models can cross obstacles if they have enough movement to place their base on the other side of the obstacle. Otherwise, the model must stop short of the obstacle as its base cannot physically fit. Models can, however, stand on obstacles if the obstacle is large enough and both players agree before the start of the game. Climbing on top of an obstacle takes one inch of a model's movement unless that model has flight. Crossing over an obstacle, however, does not impact the distance a model can move. 
Next we have structures. And this is really the last big one as far as the terrain rules are concerned. Structures provide cover as well. These are terrain features that are taller than one inch in height, such as a building, a rock formation, a high wall, or anything else you can conceive of. A model cannot move through a structure, but can move over or on top of it if it has a flight special rule or some means to travel, such as ladders, stairs, elevators, or other such features that were decided ahead of time. In the case of structures, and the, uh, so uh, they can climb up and over them, da da da, end. That's the rules on structures. However, note if a model has an, o or if a, a structure, physical building of some kind, has an entry or area inside of it, a room, what have you, as long as both players agreed upon the start of how one accesses it, you can use that legally. That, that's fine. So just keep that in mind. I also have added a few alternative terrain rules, uh, just, well, really two, uh, that are seeing wide use throughout parts of the community that I have been hearing about and decided to go ahead and notate them here just to keep them in mind and maybe help your imagination come up with other rules as you'd like. First off is forests. Alternative rules for forests would be perhaps as the follows. Forests are treated as both rough terrain and obscuring terrain. A forest is any terrain such as a wooded area, very tall alien vegetation, or anything else you would like, so long as it is not so dense that a model could not move through it. Next is tall grass. Small and medium base models would gain stealth while completely within the tall grass area. Oh, that's cool. And uh, beyond that, you can really use your imagination. One idea, for example, that I had for a piece of terrain to use is the battle would happen in a factory. And traveling through the factory on a... Uh, not on a straight path, although it could be whatever the heck you wanted, but would be a conveyor with a series of platforms traveling along, um, like a maglev system or something like that. And models could advance onto the, uh, uh, I just said the word. Conveyor. Conveyor. Uh, and would, at the end of each turn, those models would move along the uh, predetermined path. And so they, you would have to be careful to move them off before they got off the table. But that's just one of the things you could do to just kind of make things interesting. Like this gap between this area and here is too big to cross. You have to use the conveyor to get across to access the different areas of the map. But the conveyor is moving and it's not a solid object. At least not in my case. It would have little platforms with gaps in between. But really, honestly, go wild. It's entirely up to you. There's a thousand worlds to explore, so keep an open imagination. All right, next up is attacking. So here's how attacking works. When you have a solo, when a solo attacks during its activation, it selects one of its weapons and makes a single attack with it. How attacking works? Hold on, just wait for that. Squads. When a squad makes an attack during its activation, each model in the squad selects one weapon available to them and makes a single attack with it. Wait, did you say each member selects each? A, mo a model, so um, a weapon? So uh, squad members can attack with different weapons? Correct. Ah, cool. If you have three different members in your squad and they have two weapons each to choose from, you can choose to have each of them use one, or the other, or any combination so long as each model makes a single attack with a weapon. So, yeah. For instance, the um, the uh, Ranger Fire Team for the Marcher Worlds, they have the No Grenade, and they also have the Rifle. Mm -hmm. So they have to choose one or the other that they could use. Mm -hmm. However, Cypher cards could choose to have them make, say, an additional attack. They then get to choose again which weapon they want to use. Okay. Next, we have Warjacks. 
When a Warjack makes an attack during its activation, it can make one attack with each of its weapons. So if it has five weapons to fire off that round, it may shoot with all of them, or swing or hit or what have you, attack. Now, how does attacking work? Well, the how to make an attack is as follows. When a model makes a melee attack, it uses its mat, or range, uh, its melee attack stat, which is its mat, or its ranged attack stat, which is its rat. It then begins by declaring a weapon a, uh, a model is attacking with. Next, it declares the intended target. A model making an attack can only target enemy models within a number of e inches equal to the range, or RNG, of the attack. Models cannot target friendly models with attacks. You can still damage them, you cannot target them. The attacking player then makes an attack roll using a number of action dice, those are the white ones, equal to the model's mat or rat, whichever is being used. Again, mat is melee, rat is ranged. While charged, the model also adds one power die to this roll for each arc on it. So as a little reminder, solos and squads can only ever have one arc on them, and a warjack can have up to three. So, uh, next we have rolling for defense. At the same time that the attack roll is being made, the defending player makes a defense roll with a number of action dice equal to the target model's de uh, defense stat, the DEF stat. Remember to add two power dice to this roll if the model in question has cover. And a quick note, every single time I say model, that is a unit. I'm simply stating model because in the case of squads, you have multiples of them. However, they are also units. So each time a unit in question has cover, you would also add the two power dice, just for clarification there. Now we move on to how to resolve the attack. How to hit the target. If the attacker rolls the same number, <clears throat> sorry, if the attacker rolls the same uh, I need to re. <laughs> I have little uh, a spelling thing. Anyways, never mind. Um, if the attacker rolls the same or fewer strikes than the defender, then the attack misses. If the attacker rolls more strikes than the defender, the attack hits. For each and every strike that exceeds the defender's roll, the attacker will gain one power die to add to their damage roll. For example, the attacker rolls three action dice and comes up with three strikes because they have a, uh, let's say, a mat of three. The defender does not have cover and has a defense of two. And they roll two action dice and come up with one strike. So that's three strikes versus one strike. The one nullifies one, so the attacker beat the defense by two. Now we come to damaging the target. Remember, we beat the defender by two. Once a hit is confirmed, the attacking player makes a damage roll with a number of action dice equal to the weapon's POW, P-O-W, and then adds to that any number of power dice gained from exceeding the defender's roll. So in this case, that's two. So let's say it's a POW of, I don't know, three. So you have a POW of three, so that's three action dice and you have the two power dice because you defeat you uh, beat the defense roll by two. So now you pick up those five dice and roll them. Once the dice have been rolled for damage, count up the number of strikes and compare them to the target's arm. That's their armor value. Every multiple that equals the arm of the target is a point of damage. So for example, your target has an arm of three, and you roll seven strikes. For every multiple of three, you do one point of damage. So in this case, you did three, and three is six, so that's two damage with one left over that then drops off and doesn't mean anything. 
Any leftover damage on the strikes is ignored. So that's how that works. All right. Um, next, we get into measuring ranges and distances. A player can measure any distance for any reason at any time. When measuring distances, measure from the closest point of the unit's base, sorry, model's base, uh, to another. So don't measure from this edge to that one way over there. Closest to closest, the, the, the physical closest points. Alright, a model is within a given distance when the nearest edge of its base is within that distance. If two models are exactly a certain distance apart, they are considered to be at that distance from each other. For example, a model that has a, a weapons range of 2 inches, or model A has a weapons range of 2 inches. Model B is precisely 2 inches away than it is in range. No, no situations of, well, um, they're, they're right at, so that, that means they're out because they're not within. No, 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 no. So long as they're exactly two inches, they're exactly two inches. They're within range. You can attack them. When measuring range, measure from the base of the model you're measuring from to the base of the target up to the maximum range of the attack or special rule. If the bases are within that range, then the attack is within range. If the target is at a range that is greater than the attack or special rule, then the target is out of range. A model that is out of range cannot be targeted. Be wary of that. So if it is out of range, you cannot target it. Period. Sorry, I took a sip from my tea there. Alright, line of sight and targeting. Many rules of attacks require a target. A model must have line of sight, or LOS for short, to another model to target it. If you do not have line of sight, then you cannot target that model. Line of sight can be blocked by terrain and, given, uh, and certain game effects. Models do not block line of sight to other models. So you can draw a line of sight through them. To determine whether a model's line of sight to another is blocked by terrain, consider the model's volume. Every model occupies a volume of space above the bottom of its base in a cylinder shape. If you can draw a line of sight from any point of a model's volume to any other point of another's model's volume, through it regardless of terrain then you can see each other if you can't then you cannot draw in a line of sight and cannot target them models volume we touched on this last time i'm coming back to it officially small base models occupy a space that is 1.75 inches tall that's one and three quarters of you uh for those of you who are not quite sure Medium-based models occupy a space that is 2.25 inches tall, or two and a quarter. Large-based models occupy a height of 2.75 inches, so two and three quarters of an inch. Now note that there are going to be larger base sizes brought out in the future, and I do actually know those models' volumes for sure. However, there are other models uh, such as the... Um, not, uh, the mantlets, then I'm waiting for that information. So I'll update that when uh, we have those rule books for certain. So check back for that later. Alright, next, and we're getting towards the end on here. Um, we have cover, blasts, and sprays. Cover, terrain features, um, Cipher cards or designated obstructions can grant cover. A model within one inch of an intervening terrain, the model, or while within uh, one inch, the model gains two power dice when making a defense roll against a ranged or fury attack. If you can draw a line of, uh, line of sight from any part of the attacker's volume to any part of a uh, target model's volume, then that line passes through a terrain feature. That terrain feature is considered intervening and cover may come up. 
Next is blast weapons and fury attacks. Blast weapons cause attacks that can damage multiple models. When a blast attack hits its target, resolve that attack as normal. After the attack is resolved, but before the model is destroyed, if applicable, the two models closest to the target hit within two inches are also hit, and they then suffer a blast damage roll that is a uh, that is POW equal to the weapon or cipher card that caused the original attack. If more than two models are eligible because they're all at the same distance, then randomize between them to determine which two models suffer the blast damage. Note that if the blast weapon misses its original intended target, then that original intended target still suffers a blast damage roll uh, that is equal to the power of the weapon. Blast damage is explosive damage. If a weapon is denoted as being kinetic but also does blast damage, then the attack is both kinetic and explosive damage. Next we have sprays. Spray weapons are attacks that can hit multiple models or units in a straight line in a single attack. A spray attack follows all normal targeting rules, however. When making a spray attack, measure the full range of the spray centered on the intended target's base. Every model whose volume this line intersects can be hit by the attack unless the attacking model's line of sight is completely blocked by terrain. Make separate attack and damage rolls against each model that may have been hit by the attack, uh, but the attack um, hit by that attack, uh, including the original target. These attacks ignore cover. Now a couple little things to note about sprays, especially concerning the wording of it. Note that a spray does not ignore line of sight rules. Line of sight is still in play. Additionally, the attacks are made against any model in between you and your target, not those past. Additionally, you can only target models you can see. So, for instance, if you have a line of four guys, but the fourth, uh, four eligible targets in a row, but the fourth one is behind, say, a wall of mist that you can't see through or something, you can't target it, so you can't attack it, even if it's within range. And if you target the second guy instead of the third, you only attack the first two. That doesn't make sense. You gotta make sure that you, you want to target the furthest model. Well, I understand. Yeah. But it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's how it's stated here. You can hit multiple models in a straight line, but you're only attacking the models. Let's see here. Make sure may, maybe I got myself confused while I'm talking about this. That would be embarrassing, but wouldn't be the first time, I suppose. Uh, spray attacks follows all the same normal rules uh, for targeting. Okay, we covered that. When making a spray attack, measure the full range of the spray centered on the intended target's base. Each model whose volume this line intersects uh, can be hit by the attack. So let's see here. Measure the full range of the spray centered on the intended target. Oh, okay, so no. I guess I I did get myself confused there. Man, yeah, that's disappointed. Um, no, I'll be honest. I'll leave that in. I apologize. So you just don't want to do the editing. <laughs> editing's a editing's a pain, and I don't want to restate all that. So, um, all right. So, you normal you, targeting rules apply when making a spray attack. Measure the full range of the spray centered on the intended target's base. And then each model whose volume this line intersects can be hit by the attack. Everything is said about in-between models and whatnot, and you can ignore that. That was me messing up, I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, sprays, however, do ignore cover, so that is very important. Next, we have slamming and being moved beyond the mission parameter. Ooh. Uh. No! <laughs> Some effects, weapons, or cipher cards can cause a model to be slammed directly away from the attacking or channeling model. The distance a model is slammed is denoted on the effect that caused the slam. A model being slammed stops if it ever contacts an obstacle, structure, or another model's base 
regardless of size. After being slammed, it suffers a damage roll that is indicated by the effect that caused the slam. If the model contacted another model's base structure or obstacle, then add a pow, uh, power dice to the damage roll. If the slam model contacts a model with an equal or smaller base, the contacted model also suffers a collateral damage roll determined by the cipher that, or attack that causes the slam. So if you take a small base model and slam it up against medium or large, the medium or large don't care. If you take a large base model and slam it up against anything but a large base model, those, those smaller base ones are going to feel it. Now, if the slam model con uh, the, 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 okay, so if a slam model contacts a model with an equal or smaller base, the contacted model suffers a collateral damage roll determined by the cipher attack that causes a slam. If an effect would ever cause a model to move or be placed beyond the table's edge, then that model is immediately destroyed. And it doesn't state how much of the model has to be over. So as far as I read that, it's any part of the base, but you and your opponent can decide that it is not clear. So if the model would ever cross that line outside of the mission parameters for any reason, it's destroyed. Um, maybe you got on a moving platform and couldn't remove your activation tokens quickly enough to get it off. Ooh. Ooh, ah, no! Alright, so... The rack and cipher. So this is... Um, that's all the rules there. The last three sections are going going over, which is the rack and ciphers, uh, army construction, and customizing your warjacks. I have fleshed these out a little more. And I'm adding them in here. So this is before your game. You're at home or wherever. And you decide you're going to construct your army to take to game night. Or it... Oh, excuse me. Got the burps for some reason there. Um, or you have a, a tournament you're going to. Whatever it is. Here's how this works. Rack and ciphers. Before the start of the game, each player must build a deck of 12 to 15 cipher cards. This becomes your rack, or your deck, if you will. Only one of each side. <laughs> well, then it can be a rack. <laughs> and if you have a 12 cards, then it's your rack. And if it's your 15 cards, then it's your great rack, I suppose. Oh, my. All right. Only one of each cipher card can be included. And the deck includes at least... Or the deck must include at least... Three of each type of card. Furies, which are the red ones. Geometrics, which are the orange ones. Harmonics, which are purple. And overdrives, which are blue. At the start of the game, each player shuffles their rack and draws a hand of five cards. During the turn, a player can play up to two cipher cards as denoted by the turn order of operations. At the end of their turn, a player can choose to discard one cipher and then draws up to his maximum hand size. So unless you have an effect on the table that states otherwise, you will cycle at maximum three cards out of your hand during the course of a single turn. Now at the start of the game, each player shuffles their racks and draw... Oh, I already stated that one, sorry. When a card expires... Or, uh, or discarded, it is placed in the discard pile, which is next to your rack. When the last card is drawn from your rack, then at that time, you, you uh, shuffle your discard pile together and place it face down as your new rack and continue to play as normal. Note, you do not do this at any other time except for when you draw the last card. So as soon as you draw it, stop, Shuffle your discard pile, turn it into your new deck, ready to go. Generally, a player's maximum hand side is 5 cards. However, if an effect on the table would increase it, then it goes into effect at the end of the turn. When the player draws, uh, or at the end of the turn when the player draws. If, however, an effect would reduce the maximum hand size of a player, that happens immediately. 
The players whose hand size has been reduced then selects and discards a card from their hand until they reach the new hand size limit. A unit can only be affected by one of each type of cipher card at a time, but can be affected by any number of different colored cipher cards at a time. Cipher cards are as follows. Overdrives, these are the blue ones, are cipher cards that can only be played on friendly warjacks. Harmonics, purple cards, are cipher cards that can only be played on a friendly unit, that being any individual model. Geometrics are orange, and they can only be played on friendly squads. Furies are red, these are offensive cards that are played as attacks against enemy models. The Fury attack roll is made to determine if it hits and damages. Fury ciphers have a POW just like weapons, and all of that information is denoted on the card. Now to make a Fury attack, first select and declare what Furies you are using on the, and the unit you are targeting. The model the Fury is being channeled through needs a line of sight and for it to be in range determined by the arc relay score of the model being channeled through. Models outside of this range cannot be targeted. A model does not have to be charged to be channeled through though. After playing the cipher card and verifying a legal target, the attacking player makes an attack roll with a number of action dice equal to the FOC, or focus, of the model it's being channeled through. So whatever your weaver or anything else that has an FOC score, you can channel through those. Alright, um, so you get a number of action dice equal to the focus score, plus a number of power dice equal to the amount of arc currently in your Warcaster's well. Do not add power dice to this roll for the arc on the model the Fury is being channeled through. Ever. Never. Don't do it. If the attack hits, the attacking player makes a damage roll with a number of action dice equal to the power of the Fury plus a number of power dice equal to the number of strikes the attacker rolled over the defender's roll. So just like any other attack. Damage is resolved, again, just like a melee or ranged attack would. A cipher may target a model, unit, solo, squad, or warjack, so long as the appropriate color and rules are applied. If a cipher targets a unit or squad, it affects all models in that squad in play. A cipher that targets a model, however, only affects that specific model. So if, say, you have a harmonics card, the purple ones, that say target unit gains this effect, the entire squad gains it. However, if it says model gains this effect, only the specific model you put it on gain that effect. When a geometric, harmonic, or overdrive are in play, it can be played on any legal targets and does not have to be channeled. Furies, however, must be channeled to happen. If no weavers or models with the FOC score are currently in play, then you cannot play the Fury card. When a player plays a cipher on a model or unit, place that card next to that model until the effect is resolved. If a cipher does not denote when it expires, then it expires as soon as the effects are resolved on the card, and then is placed on a discard pile. If it expires at the end of the pulse round, it stays there for however many turns it takes until the pulse round ends. So keep that in mind. Alright, second to last, we have Army Composition. Before the start of the game and after you construct your rack and draw your hand, you can choose any 15 units plus up to 3 hero solos uh, to build your army out of. You cannot have more than 4 of any one specific unit in your force. This includes warjacks based on the same chassis 
regardless of how they are customized. Please note that some missions may have special restrictions on army composition, such as requiring that only two squads or solos may score, or sorry, or that only squads or solos can score. Uh, they could also have restrictions on how many units or heroes can be included. This is denoted as follows, such as 8 slash 1. That means you can have up to 8 units and 1 hero. Or 11 slash 2. That means 11 units and up to 2 heroes can be in your army before your, you construct your force. Make sure that you know which one you are building and how and uh, what you are doing. For instance, a skirmish is 8 slash 1. A modified skirmish is 11 slash 2. And then you have full size, which is 15 slash 3. Mercenary slots uh, occupy your hero slot. You can, however, uh, sacrifice your unit slots to add in more heroes, uh, depending on the exact rules for um, the scenario. And I'm going to touch on that more later once we get the collision course rule set in, because it really goes into detail on how all that works. So for now, 11 slash 1, or sorry, 11 slash 2, 8 slash 1, 15 slash 3, that's how that is. Now, squad attachments are additional models that can be added to squads. These are officers, special weapon troops, medics, etc. They are assigned to the squad. The attachments, or yeah, the attachments stat card determines what squads it can be attached to. Each attachment has a cost modifier that adds to the deployment cost, or DC, of the unit once brought into play. If the added cost is paid, then the attachment is simply added to the unit when it comes into play. A squad can have no more than one attachment on it at any one time of deployment, but only one, sorry, a squad can have more than one. It can have more than one attachment on it at any time of deployment, but only one of each type at a time. A squad cannot deploy with attachments that exceeds the total deployment cost of the available arc on the gate. So, you build this really awesome little squad that has all these attachments on it and all these weapons and it's so awesome but it costs 6 DC. I'm sorry, you cannot start the game with that little unit squad package you put together, nor can you deploy it from your gate because it costs more than 5. So be aware of that. Alright, um, next, attachments have a speed stat equal to the squad they are attached to, even if the attached uh, attachment card says a different value. Squad-wide special rules or cipher cards affect the attachments as well, even if the attachment does not have them listed on their stat card. Note that squad attachments are not considered individual units and do not count towards the listed unit limit of your force. Wild cards are units that can be included in two or more different factions. They could be mercenaries or perhaps even more complex, loyal, uh, complex loyalty issues, blah blah blah, backstory inserted here. <laughs> Last... <laughs> Lastly, we have customizing your warjacks. Sorry, I'm going to enjoy my tea. It's getting cold. Ah, tea. Okay. Oh, if you guys hear that sound. He's rubbing his hands together. I'm rubbing my hands together as they're getting sweaty or cold or what have you. And uh, I didn't realize until I was listening to one of our uh, podcasts for quality control purposes that you can, guys can hear that. Sorry, I do it uh, um, without thinking about it. All right, next we have, well, lastly, we have customizing your warjacks. Here's how that works. Each warjack has a designated chassis, such as Death Wolf or Firebrand or what have you. Each chassis has a number of head, 
and weapon options available to them. This is allows you to customize your warjack. The customization takes place at the time the player builds their force. And once selected, it cannot be changed during the course of the game. To customize a warjack, select that chassis that you will be using. Next, choose a head or cortex for your warjack. This becomes a weapon. Uh, yeah, this, I just stated that. Um, when the warjacks are, check the warjacks card to see what the benefits of that cortex are that it gives you. Then select and add any additional weapons or equipment. Each warjack has a number of weapon points and each weapon or equipment has a cost to equip and a location it can be equipped to. Weapons and equipment are also restrictive on where they can be placed, such as shoulder or arm. These are hard points that weapons and equipment can be attached to. These cannot be exchanged and must be put on the correct hard point. Each weapon or equipment states on its card that the uh, what warjacks they can be equipped to and what hard points they can be equipped to. When equipping your warjacks loadout, you do not have to use its entire allotment of weapon points nor every hard point. You cannot, however, exceed the number of weapon point total. So if your warjack has a weapon point total of 5, all of your weapons you equip to that jack must equal 5 or less. And that is it. That's all we have without getting into the scenario information, which I will save for some other packet at some other date. Okay, so... Do we have any time left? We, do um, we... Let's see here. We've been going for 45 minutes, honestly. Not, well, the, not that the, bad. The biggest and most importantest thing happening right now that, you know, anyone could really care about is that... Um, Warn, uh, Riot Quest, um, Chili Con Carne, Con Chili, Carnage, Con, Ch Chili Con Carnage. Carnage, uh, is live and funded. Yeah, it was funded in 32 minutes, 36 minutes, something absurd. Now, I haven't checked the 30 some minutes. stretch goals today, but God knows they probably have all of them. Probably. Um, yeah, have a sec. I had it pulled up, but then I got bored and I was fiddling with my phone while you were talking. I'm sorry. Flippy flip phone, flip flip scroll scroll. Ooh, click 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 click. Oh wait, where was I? Yeah, yes. basically. Well, I'm I'm a bad co-host, and there wasn't much for me to do. I'm sorry. It's fine. I occasionally look to you for commentary, but you were busy fiddling with looking at things. Yes, here we go. Ah, here uh, we are. Let me let me see. Let me let me click 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 the link. So what are we up to? As of right now, we are up to 134,000. Holy crap. Keep in mind, they only asked for 40,000. So we're almost 100,000 over that. And the pledge levels are the... Um, um, we're going to look at the stretch goals. Oh, there's the stretch goals. Okay. So, so we have the first wait, wait. bunch unlocked. Okay, so we have unlocked... One, two, three, four stretch goals, and we are on the cusp of unlocking the next one. Okay, so what we have unlocked so far is we have unlocked the payday, which everyone gets points um, that they can expend in the uh, store to get special little things that they want. Uh, and then we have the... Special Mechanica card. Oh, okay, so Treasure Trove upgrade the Mechanica... Mechanino Rapture Riot card, whatever that is. I'm sure it'll be awesome. We get the add-on for the Neoprene Playmat, and uh, it's a Mechano Factory. That looks cool. And then whatever the Digital Gear Guide is. Digital Gear Guide. I, I'm hoping that allows us to look up the gears online and download them and print them off, just like we have the cards for War Machine. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that's what it is because if you lose your card or you get a model in a trade but you can't get the physical card, it's really annoying because then you can't use it for Riot Quest. So, crossing my fingers that's what that is. I don't know and I haven't seen anything anywhere on it. 
So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, that's like the biggest news. Yeah. Hey, I mean, that's the biggest news from here to the other timeline. Oh, that was a really, really stretch of a dad joke there. <laughs> that was an obscure joke. It took me a second. <laughs> I was like, what is he? Oh, yeah. All right, Christ, take place in another diamond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay. Well, um... Some tea for you. Yes. That's a podcast about Warcaster Rules Digest, tea, and Riot Quest. I don't know what else to really talk about. Do you have anything? No, I'm good. Yeah. Plus, we, we filled out the time, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Yeah. Bye. Mwah. Don't leave at the mic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Warnouns. If you'd like to contact us, I put our Gmail and Twitter info in the show notes. You can also find there a list of all relevant resources or shoutouts we mention or use for today's cast. There will also be a link to our Ko-fi if you feel so inclined to make a donation to our caffeine habits. And lastly, if you want to learn more about our intro or outro music, you can find a link to Prodless on Bandcamp. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.